This is Bonjour Chai, the Jacob and Rachel and Leah and Billa and Zilpa edition. I'm Avi Fangel and I'm here with Phoebe Maltzbovi. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we are monogamous about polyamory. That's all we're talking about today. Well, we have a bit of digressions at the beginning, but we are going to talk about its implications within the Jewish community. We are going to talk about why it's having a moment in society, all that and so much more coming up right after this. Phoebe, it's been a busy week. Has it been a busy week for you? Not as busy as for you. Avi, what have you been up to? I had uh, an amazing time, actually, at the Illinois Holocaust Museum, which I did not know is probably, I think, the third largest Holocaust museum in the world. They had their annual dinner. It was a beautiful event. 1,700 people were there along with uh, Deborah Messing, along with the uh, the former First Lady, uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton. It was a beautiful evening, a beautiful event honoring Chiuni Sugihara, who was a Japanese diplomat who saved uh, thousands and thousands of people to give them transit visas to be able to travel to Shanghai, where they spent time through the war. There was over 20,000 people that uh, went through there, uh, including my wife's grandfather. So all of uh, the descendants in the room were invited to go up there and to uh, pay tribute with descendants of Sugihara. So that was a beautiful moment. There was a lot of um, uh, interesting stuff. My kids got to go to a big, beautiful dinner. My daughter met Deborah Messing. My other daughter met uh, Hillary Clinton. A great time was had by all. Where our weeks are busy, it's good. It's good thing we got an extra day this month. Um, it is yes. it's leap day while we're recording today. Always uh, an important day to be able to celebrate the people who are born on February 29th. No, it's it's these people. Do you get really annoyed? These people were like, no, I'm only you know 13 because I'm born on February 29th, so I only get to celebrate my birthday every four years. And, I yeah, guess I don't find it a very clever joke, it's but not. I'm sure the first time you hear it, you probably do. Yeah. I saw something uh, online about uh, somebody was complaining about how people who are on regular paychecks are having to work an extra day unpaid because of February 29th. And I was like, wait a second, rabbis have to work a whole extra month because the Jewish calendar puts in uh, an extra month every few years. So we don't get paid for the Adar Bet, which is about to come up. But apparently, you know, one day extra and, you know, the proletariat gets up in arms about things. This is a problem. Yeah, the Jewish calendar is really weird. I don't know if you know, it's like 354 days in the lunar month. The, the, the solar calendar is 365. They got to make up those 11 days somehow. So they stick in an extra month every three years, roughly. I see. So now that, now that we've touched upon the most racy topic possible. We're going to switch gears, I think, maybe. Yes, let's get to the more racy (laughs) topics of the day right after we hear from our sponsor. Don't take half measures when it comes to home security. Alarms and cameras work, but they'll only tell you that your worst nightmare just came true. Safety Screen by Metalex for windows and doors will keep your family safe and sound with real stopping power. They can't be cut, pride, or bashed in, so you can enjoy carefree ventilation in the spring and fall with peace of mind. And protect your fixed windows and doors with rock glass, an absolutely unbreakable clear covering. Call 416-638-2539 or visit metalexsecurity.com to book your free consultation. That's M-E-T-A-L-E-X security.com. Remember, prevention is always better than the cure. (laughs) 
Okay, so Phoebe, you have an article that is imminent uh, on the web and coming out in the CJN magazine, which of course you can get if you subscribe to the CJN uh, or give a donation or any, all of that goodness. Um, can you tell us about this article, its genesis about and everything that we need to know about polyamory in order to understand this article? Sure, in, in, in one sentence. Um, so first of all, what is polyamory? Polyamory is having multiple romantic and sexual relationships concurrently, right? So it's not the same as somebody who dates different people and then marries one of them or is married to different people at different times. It's like, at the same time, somebody has a bunch of different relationships and they all know about one another and it's fine and everybody has agreed to it is the idea, okay, in, in principle. It doesn't imply that the relationships are all of equal level or whatever. Some maybe like there's some sort of primary relationship and secondary relationships or they are all equal, like the hierarchy can be different. I say all of this as not a historian of polyamory, not a practitioner of polyamory as somebody who has Googled it, who has listened to Dan Savage's podcast, who lives in the culture. I am not an expert. I'm not coming to this topic as an expert on polyamory. But in case you are coming to this topic as even less of an expert than I am, that's the kind of basic thing. A distinction is generally made between polyamory and polygamy, right? Which would be, you know, the thing you hear about from olden days when, you know, generally that'll be a man has a bunch of wives, right? And there's mm -hmm. no, traditionally, there would not be an assumption that these different wives all are off having different boyfriends or girlfriends or dating one another. No, no, the idea would be that the man has all these wives and they are all loyal to that man. That would be the old school version of things. And to take it from the abstract to the more specific is that I reviewed this book more which is a polyamory memoir by a woman named Molly Roden Winter. And it's ostensibly a book about the new polyamory that's modern, it's feminist, it's secular, it's glamorous. She's, you know, a wealthy woman who lives in a very literary neighborhood in Brooklyn. And here is how she lives her life. But when you actually read the book, what comes through is that it's something a lot more archaic, basically. I am interested in this topic from the perspective of how big of a difference is there necessarily between in all case. I mean, obviously, individual cases may vary, and we're, we'll talk about this, but I'm interested in the possibly less great than commonly assumed distinction between what this modern thing of ethical non-monogamy or polyamory. But what I wanted to talk about with Avi, though, is um, the Jewish angle. And that's a few different things. So just to give this sort of quick, quick background on the Jewish relationship between this polyamory memoir. Like, so technically, it's a Jewish book. Molly Roden Winter has written elsewhere that she converted to Judaism. Zero mention of this in the book itself. So... This is going to have to come from us on the podcast. So Avi, I'm going to ask you a few things. Ready? You ready for a few questions? Yeah. Okay. So the first is... Um, <laughs> okay. I'm waiting. Religiously. This is fun. Yes. Religiously. In terms of the Bible, the Talmud, Jewish law, what is, where does Jewish law stand on polyamory? First of all... Would that even ever be a question except a man with multiple wives? And is that okay? 
can Jews have? I feel like I'm Napoleon asking the Sanhedrin, right? Sure. This is and like literally I'm, one I'm of those questions. Yes, all I'm Napoleon. I'm short. So, okay. Before, in order to find that, we have to think about what does Judaism have to say about marriage in general, right? And Judaism believes in marriage. Judaism believes in legally being married to a person. Um, and the way in which Judaism really thinks about marriage, if you, if you stop and look at it biblically and beyond, is it's sort of halfway between this classical understanding of marriage as an economic institution, right? If you read Stephanie Kuntz's great book on marriage, you understand that until very, very recently, um, marriage was basically economics. If you could afford it, you married for love, but the vast majority of people married because it made sense for their families to come together. Um, you may grow into love eventually, but it wasn't necessarily the case. Um, so we have that on the one hand, um, and the understanding that it's an economic institution. Um, part of that is also definitely um, recognizing that there is a relationship that one should grow into and have a great relationship that you should not marry somebody that you're not attracted to, that you're not interested in being with. And the Talmud does talk about this extensively. Um, so all of that is the, you know, understanding of, you know, two people getting married together in a heteronormative way of a man and a woman. Clearly in the Bible, there are people marrying more than one person at a time, uh, whether we're going to call this concubines or multiple wives. Uh, it is. And when you say people marry, was it always, always was, there ever, was there ever a woman who had multiple wives? No, obviously not. We know it wasn't going to be. We know that the, the Bible was not, you know, an LGBTQ plus. Yeah. The Talmud perpetuates this. The Talmud actually goes and says, I love this, is that, yes, you can have more than one wife, but the second wife is called Tsarata, right? His, his Tsuras, essentially. It's the same word, yes. right? That having more than one wife is complicated and annoying and not necessarily worth it. But if you want to, you can. But as is the case with Judaism, or if you're going to go and extend this to anything, any society really um, Mores shift and ethics shift with it and cultural understandings shift with it. So around a thousand years ago, a individual by the name of Rabbeinu Gershom um, puts out various edicts across various different things. Part of it is like, you know, in involving uh, intellectual property theft and what's considered, you know, stealing. Are you uh, reading? You're not allowed to read somebody's mail. He gives all these various edicts. And one of the edicts that he gives, he says, you shouldn't marry more than one wife. And this clearly is because in the world world in which they are living um, in medieval Ashkenaz, right, is that we do not marry more than one wife. It's a, not a very Christian thing to do. Uh, you know, let's bracket the Mormons for a second. Um, and as a result, we don't do this. And so it is not a Jewish thing. And he makes an edict that says that you are not allowed to do this. This doesn't extend to the Sephardic world. Uh, all of this, remember, is still polygamy, not polyamory. Right, right, right. Um, in the Sephardic world, until fairly recently, you have it. I've seen Sephardic marriage documents of the contract, the Ketubah, where it specifically states, and this is written to this day, although it's not enforced or practiced or whatever, that and if he wants to take a second wife, she has to ask, uh, he has to ask his first wife permission, and she has to approve of the second wife. Um, the interesting anecdote is that in Yemen, 
when there was uh, people marrying more than one wife and when the Yemenite uh, immigration to Israel happened, uh, these people, even though Israel uh, outlawed bigamy uh, until, you know, fairly early on, these people were grandfathered in um, for if you had more than one wife, you were able to still retain those wives, but you weren't allowed to marry anybody new like that. So all of this is, remember, bigamy, it's polygamy. It's not necessarily the current state of polyamory as it stands. The important piece to remember that I said about Rabbi Nugersham, which I think is going to be applicable here, is that Judaism always seems to uh, evolve with whatever sexual mores are around. So when you're in a fairly sexually permissive society, the rabbis will go and say, you see, everything is allowed, and you see the Torah says everything is allowed, and you could be fine. And then when you're in a more sexually repressed society, the, you hear the rabbis say, well, listen, the Torah says that certain things are allowed, but that doesn't mean you have to do them, and we shouldn't do them, and they're not right, and it's not, you know, it's an, a, 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 a really respectable individual should not do this and would not do this. So that's going to come into play with what's about to happen. Like the part of this topic that interests me is really this way that we talk about on this show in society in general, like there's religious stuff, there's secular stuff, there's the way religious people do things, there's the way secular people do things. And I think this is a wonderful topic for offering a window into the way people are people, and people behave nicely or not nicely. And a lot of the dynamics that exist in the world aren't necessarily so aligned with one thing or another the way you might think. And, and this comes up in the article I wrote, People seem to talk about polyamory as though if you call it ethical non-monogamy, if you say these are modern secular people who are doing this for modern secular reasons, it would somehow be immune to traditionalist gender roles, to the fact that the whole history of this phenomenon in the West has been one man having multiple wives, right? So some of this is that we don't, you know, like if you're talking about modern secular people, especially it's not always straight people. So some of this is that if you're talking about same-sex relationships, you're not going to have the same gender dynamics that would exist in a relationship that begins with a heterosexual marriage. So some of it is like when when Dan Savage is giving advice to straight people based on like what can work for some gay men, obviously gay men, there's not going to be that one person is sort of shuttled into the role of housewife doormat if there's no woman. Yeah, it sounds like, and help me out here, because this goes does go back to the Jewish thing, but I'm curious, what it sounds like what you're saying is, is that when one says ethical non-monogamy, it's designed to be as inclusive and as radically sexually open as yes. possible. But what reality, the vast majority of people who refer to themselves as ethically non-monogamous are in using still very, very stereotypically heteronormative ways of understanding. Okay, so no, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to push back. No, that's <laughs> not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we all live in society and society, like we all have the same collective history, whatever, you know, where the Bible with the the man with multiple wives, whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, not ev not everybody doing this is radically challenging norms. Sometimes they are... And I don't think that's true in monogamy either. I don't think everybody monogamous is being monogamous to be feminist or something like that. That would be bizarre. I'm not saying most people who are calling themselves ethically non-monogamous, it's cads being nasty. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that there's no reason to think it couldn't be that a lot of the time because we live in the world. So this comes up um, in this New York Magazine 
big feature that's so there's a lot of polyamory is all over the media at the moment um I was and that was going to be the next like, thing so yeah so one of the many wall street journal yes, new yorker yes, washington post yes. atlantic ezra klein esther perel and and a great article in vox that oh, really? i just read okay also. Yeah. i was going to say so there have been there's been all this coverage and the reason for all this coverage is not that suddenly everybody's polyamorous that is not the case people have been polyamorous prior to three weeks ago or whatever, three months ago. The reason for all this coverage, a lot of it has to do with the fact that there's this book that made a really, really big deal, a big splash in the publishing world. A previously unknown author, basically, she's written like a few freelance articles or something. It's her first book and she's in her early 50s. Um, Molly Roden Winter's memoir, More, has been extremely publicized. And I want to say, having read it, with good reason, it is a very... Um, I'm not going to say it's a good book from a literary perspective. It is a very accessible book, a very accessible book in which a lot of sex happens. So that's kind of why polyamory is so much in the news right now is because of this one book. It's not that everybody's actually... I mean, you know, some people are. Some people are. Okay. But um, I don't know whether it's... Uh, yeah. Zach, you are desperate to say something. I see your face. Listening to your conversation, it's been interesting... As someone who has been um, dating Tinder and Hinge and the apps and among people who have same sex relationships, the way that people post on their profiles certainly uh, went up like in a poly relationship, looking for to expand our circles, looking to meet new people, have adventures, have whatever um, that in recent years has been a big thing. I've noticed recently there's also been. Uh, a little bit of a reactionary force of people being like a little bit apologetically saying like nothing wrong with polyamory you know i you respect you and whatever you want to do only looking for single people and uh i think there's like an idea of polyamory as the most um liberating progressive way that isn't bound by all of these like prudish ideas of mirror uh, relationships that look like this or this and then anything that's more conservative people are like oh am i like am i prudish if i don't want to be poly that's a, just a dynamic dropping in from someone on the dating okay. app thank you for that zach because that actually is really helpful for um explaining why i think things go differently from that in in more because it's not just the happenstance fact that this is a heterosexual woman um with a husband this is this book takes place in a world where everybody's straight, okay, virtually. And I, I'm going to get to where that isn't the case because it's interesting um, how that plays out. But basically, she is. It's not just that she happens to be straight and that everybody somehow in Park Slope, Brooklyn. This would not have been the case when I lived in Park Slope, Brooklyn. But whatever, everybody she encounters is like I was going to the. Maybe everybody else was that, and they just weren't inviting you to those parties. No, no, I don't mean that. I'm saying that I was like going to the lesbian bar with my roommate because she was a lesbian and that was sort of more how things went in Park Slope in that time but anyway the point is um this woman is the very much financially dependent spouse in her very traditionally aligned marriage she is staying home with little children they live in so a lot of the coverage of this book has been about how rich these people are and they don't really announce it but you can tell because they live in a they own and renovate in the course of the book a park slope townhouse it's not just that they are rich it's that he is rich and she is financially dependent and this comes up throughout the book at various points he wants 
an open marriage. She doesn't at various points in the book. Why, what is the great mystery as to why his way wins out? I mean, do, how, how much gender theory do you, you don't need gender theory. You just need to look at, think about what the financial situation is. She writes that she does the entirety of like bedtime with the little children. She does all the cooking, all the cleanup. She does everything in the house. And then once they open their marriage, she additionally, once the children have gone to bed, once he gets home from whatever it is he's doing, um, she then goes out and has these liaisons with people. Is, she thinks, it, the, the whole thing begins, um, with their, the whole thing, I mean, their open marriage begins when she's mad at him for having, like, not been doing anything in the house, which, understandably so, he seems pretty... Annoying in that respect. Um, so she goes out in a huff, takes a walk, runs into a female friend, goes to a bar with her friend, meets and flirts with an attractive young man. She comes home and thinks like, yeah, I've really like, I've stuck it to my husband. Like I've really gotten back at him for annoying me. And instead he's like, I'm into it. He, the husband in this book, likes it. That's something he finds enjoyable to think about is the most um, delicate way I could put this. I don't know, like... It's a turn it's on. A turn, it, it, it turns him on. Okay, that's the, that's it. That's it turns him on. What then ensues is that he also says, "Well, if you're going to be with other men, I get to be with other women." So it's basically it's win 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 for the husband. She, in turn, and throughout this book, has all these very disappointing flings or more serious relationships with men that go very very poorly in different ways. But they stay in this open marriage. Why? Why do they stay in the open marriage? Because ostensibly, according to the books marketing and according to certain things she sort of says but doesn't show in the book it's because she's discovered polyamory and had an epiphany about how you can love many people at the same time and how wonderful that is what you actually see when you read the book is that this is a woman who is a doormat basically um hopefully that changes for her now that she's a best-selling author but yeah it, it seems like the thing that's calling itself progressive isn't so yeah in past years the sort of if you've been listening to Dan Savage, if you've been listening to Esther Perel, if you've been listening to a lot of relationship columnists, as I have, the sort of move towards being pro-polyamory has been a little bit because of a skepticism of uh, the idea of the one, that you can have one partner who is able to fulfill your your romantic life, your breadwinner, be able to be a best friend, spiritual partner, that you know, one person is going to fulfill everything for you. Um, and that in a polyamorous way, you can have a life partner. And and even if they don't, um, you know, check every single box, you can still have a wonderful marriage and life together and get pleasure with from other types of relationships. So in terms of that, you were talking about like, they have these, she, he's the breadwinner, she does this, does their polyamory liberate them from, you know, these prescribed roles? Uh, the short answer is no. The longer answer, it, it, it reinforces it. So what I would say to sort of to first directly answer your question, it doesn't invent the unequal gender dynamics in their marriage. It's not that when they're monogamous, it's all going swimmingly. But it doesn't really change it. And there was a line in this Atlantic article, um, instead of a, a revolution in who does the dishes, it's uh, like they, they substitute a revolution in like 
that she can sleep with a bunch of people. Because it's what really comes through in the book is just how exhausted she is. She writes throughout the book about having these horrible migraine headaches. And she's working with a therapist, like an analyst, to figure out why does she get these headaches, looking for some kind of like profound reason, like, oh, it must be because she's not exploring her inner self the most. It's like, no, you're not sleeping, lady. You're not sleeping. The time you should be asleep, you are doing these things. And it's like, I just want her to get some sleep. I don't care what she does, who she's having sex with. I just want her to get some sleep. And like her husband is not even like, it's not that he's even carving out time for her to have affairs. She has to do this. Like she has to take care of the children into the night, including on the weekend. She has to somehow do all the time. It doesn't make any sense. But what I would say to the bigger point, Zach, though, about like what relationship advice of recent years, I think that that has brought something useful to even monogamous relationships, which is to say, yeah, your partner shouldn't be the only person you have anything to do with, you have any thoughts about, you know, your partner shouldn't be your only friend, if that makes sense. And it fits with a broader critique of society saying that people are too atomized, too stuck in their nuclear families, it takes a village, all of this. It has to do with a a bunch of things that have nothing to do even like with sexual relationships at all that are just this kind of critique of atomization in society, right? I think there's something to be said for like, even in monogamous relationships, admitting that people are, you know, married, but not dead or whatever. What does that mean? It means that married people, even monogamously married people, if like, it means that if Brad Pitt walks by, a married straight woman isn't going to be like, oh, I didn't see him. I only have eyes for my husband, which had been and I think to some extent still is in some circles expected. And I think that doesn't help anybody. It sounds like what's the, at issue here is not the idea of ethical non-monogamy, and I'm not here to defend nor uh, castigate it, is that this book describes non-ethical non-monogamy, right? If you read all of these articles and for years and all of this stuff, so much of the discussion around ethical non-monogamy is about the negotiation. It's about the ethical part of it. It's the, are you sure, you know, are, that everybody's on the same page? Are you checking in regularly? Is everything going on according to plan, checking in, because if something isn't, then you have to take a step back, then you should go into therapy. How do you deal with that? You you know, all of this stuff is all there, and the focus is on the ethics. What you're saying, Phoebe, is that in this couple, and maybe by extension, many other couples, the reality is that it's not nearly as ethical as they would like you to believe that, uh, uh, that sort is Sort of. So Avi, what I would say to this is they tick those boxes, they discuss their feelings, they go to many therapists. But what comes through in the book is that she says multiple times to therapists, I don't want to be in an open marriage anymore. And she says to her husband, I don't want to be in an open marriage anymore. This is making me miserable. And then is sort of pushed to just towards, nudged towards an epiphany that actually, much like her husband, she does want to still be in an open marriage and be polyamorous then. Yeah, but if it took a lot of non-ethical, you know, pushing in that direction, what does that mean? How many... Real life polyamorous situations this would apply to? I don't know. How would I know? I haven't surveyed them. But I'm saying it seems weird to me that we've had this whole reckoning with Me Too and all this discussion of like gender roles and dynamics and relationships and power imbalances and all of this. How would that not apply once you're talking about polyamory? I'm not saying it would only apply in polyamory, but I'm saying how would it not also apply there? A hundred percent. That's what I was thinking as you were speaking, that people talk about like, yeah, but it, there's non-ethical polyamory. And I'm like, in monogamous misrelationships, people are jerks and mistreat each other. Absolutely. Also. Um, yeah. So we shouldn't be surprised. Right. And and 
monogamous relationships don't work out all the time for all types right. of reasons. We shouldn't be surprised that also in polyamorous relationships, things don't work out right. and people are jerks. Right. I mean, I think the, the difference, though, is that when you're talking about heterosexual relationships, and specifically in cases like this where you have um, a breadwinner and a stay-at-home mom, right? Who is in control, right? Like, who who can decide... Who has the ability to go out and see a bunch of other people without that cutting into their sleep, you know? And I think that that is where just sort of blanket saying, well, gender shouldn't matter. These are just people, consenting adults, whatever. No, gender really does matter. And gender roles really matter. And biology matters. Who's home, like nursing a baby or whatever matters. And yeah, I think this is where what interests me about this is just this way that the thing that seems like it would be progressive and feminist sometimes isn't. You know, what I'm really fascinated by is that if this, is this polyamory thing having a moment now, or is it really going to be here to stay? And if so, what is going to be the Jewish response to it? Um, and, you know, from liberal settings, from, from traditional settings, um, are we actually going to see rabbis starting to opine on, you know, whether or not an open marriage is acceptable, um, given the Judaism has deep roots in non-monogamy? I think what's really interesting is you have, on the one hand, the super progressive, like, this will just be the next frontier, right? Exactly but on the point. other yeah. hand, you have that it could be, like, very much a regressive thing. And um, you're saying that there are going to be rabbis that are going to go and say you can marry multiple wives, but you, a woman cannot marry multiple. I'm not predicting that that's going to men. happen, but what I'm saying, uh, I am okay. That, that, it could, that it could, could very well happen. Okay, you yeah. would know better than I would whether that <laughs> that would be out there. Um, what I'm getting at is that sometimes when you're talking specifically about feminism, you get in these situations where the thing that sounds progressive may not be the thing that's feminist. Does that make sense? What I'm saying. Yeah, And I think that that's kind of where we're at with this, where, yes, it does sound progressive to say that consenting adults can negotiate whatever they want. And in principle, that's true. In practice, we live in the world we live in. So, so this was what was fascinating to me about the, the Vox article that just came out, um, in that there were two very conflicting things that, that were written in there from the different people um, that were quoted. And one of them said the exact opposite of what you just said, which was a big portion of society will also tend to view polyamory as something exclusively beneficial to men, which Gleason points out misunderstands polyamorous, polyamory's roots in American culture. Sexual freedom has always been the end goal for the feminist and queer liberation movements, without which polyamory wouldn't be a point of discussion at all, which there's so much to unpack there, but the idea that like, no, this is the most progressive thing we can do is to be polyamorous, right? And then there's this other quote that says, it can be very comforting to go on a set path, to be exclusive, get married and have kids, explains Yao. Knowing that there are options outside of that can be a really terrifying prospect for people who might never have questioned this kind of thing in their lives. And that, you know, polyamory is actually regressive. It's just this ability to say, I don't want to grow up. So I'm just going to go and have all these relationships without having to think about what it means to grow up it is so messy and we're moving quickly as a society means that it's we're not quite sure where this lands and there will be people that will say yes uh polyamory is going to be the most jewish progressive you know moving forward this is exactly what we should be doing there are people that are going to say it's absolutely wrong they're going to be religious people they're going to be very much observant people they're going to you know extend this and say yes 100 percent, as long as you know the woman is uh you know only sleeping with other women so what i think um is interesting about this is just when you talk about this topic in the abstract, 
it sounds all very, very um, modern and progressive and all of this. You have to read the book to understand what it could look like. I'm not saying that's the only way it would look. But I think that when I've seen articles about like how Judaism, how like liberal denominations of Judaism may approach polyamory, it's like everybody is in some sort of queer utopia. Here, you get this woman who is couldn't be further from she's in Brooklyn she couldn't be further from some sort of queer utopia she is in the most like archaic 1950s depends who you ask about Brooklyn but yeah well it depends which part of Brooklyn but her part of Brooklyn yeah her part of Brooklyn though yeah for sure um and then the idea that yeah I mean I I don't want to digress too too much into because like this is what my book is about and isn't really what Bonjour High is about but Basically, this idea that women are fine as long as because women are just so sexually fluid and it could be fine as long as a woman can be with other women. This book, uh, all I will say for now is it illustrates that that is not so, that there are, in fact, heterosexual women who are not. um, However, um, theoretically open they are to it is not for them. And uh, yeah, Yeah, I when I hear this and the more, you know, I'm discussing this and I'm trying to I don't have my ideas about this. I have nobody's formally asked me, Rabbi. Can I have an open relationship? Um, I think that it's messy. It's very, very messy. It's almost inevitably bound to get messy. Um, And when things like this can get very messy, it's usually better to, I don't know, like I feel like better to stay away from the potential messiness if the messiness is going to lead to so many other things. And do the benefits that much more outweigh the possibilities of anything messy, you know, all the negativity there. I'm not so sure. I'm kind of skeptical about it. Um, I, I do agree with you 100% that historically, right, this notion of like, we needed our wife, to, our partner, we needed whoever it is to be everything for us, um, wasn't always the case. It was rarely the case. Um, and we have reverted to that. And that's the part where actually, I'm most curious about the direction it's going. Because if you look at contemporary, um, especially traditional Jewish uh, discourse around marriage, there is so much emphasis placed on the fact, and there's so many books written about, oh my God, God wants these two people to come together. God wants a man and a woman exclusively to come together. God wants this shidduch to happen. God wants this heteronormative couple to be there and to fall in love. And your cup, your partner is supposed to be everything for everything for everybody. All of that is supposed to you know, be there. Um, you don't have to fall in love before the marriage, but you grow into love. This is what you do. And this is the ideal form that God created. Um, but in reality, I, I've had a really hard time with that because the Bible is filled with people who don't engage in that single coupledom um, that where everything is perfect. Um, and historically, we never had that. And we have friends and we have this and we have relationships. We have different types of uh, people in our lives. And to expect the way that the Haredi press uh, puts out all of these discussions as if this was exactly what God wants isn't necessarily true. And I'm curious to see how that discourse is going to shift over time if polyamory becomes a much bigger part of of contemporary society, which I'm not sure that it is yet or not. But if it does, I think that that's going to become something really, really interesting to see um, and to, to track uh, and to follow along. Well, Avi, I assume you will be officiating the first um, really? polyamorous <laughs> uh, uh, live on, streaming it. No, on, on my Vision Pro, on, on uh, Meta, on some, you know, in the Matrix, in the, okay, in yeah, the Metaverse. Certainly. We'd love to hear your thoughts, please. I'm sure 
you know, let's get engaged in a polyamorous couple relationship with all of our listeners. Please tell us what you think. Send us emails at bonjour at the cjn.ca to explain to us your, you know, uh, religious thruppledom and how you sponsor Kiddush and it makes it cheaper that way or anything that happens within your religious polyamorous life or secular Jewish polyamorous life. I would love to hear from it. Let's hear about our nachas or bragas, if that's the case, um, right after we hear from our sponsor. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. All right, Phoebe, what do you have for me this week? A nachas or a broigus? Uh, it's a nachas in which somebody is broigus. Does that Oh, it's, an, it's a noigus. Yes. Um, so it's a really juicy, delightful pan of a book. So a negative book review. It's in the Atlantic. The book review is by Lily Meyer. The book is um, by Liz Lenz, I believe. It's called This American Ex-Wife is the title, title of the book. That's this woman's sort of memoir manifesto saying that she uh, divorced her husband and that was the most feminist thing she could ever do and the most feminist thing any woman could ever do and how like everybody should do what she does. And this book review basically um, questions both that take, basically, but also the reason I think it's interesting is it just questions more generally this style of writing that's been kind of the default in, you know, in like Atlantic articles, memoirs, things like this. And, and for example, more, where you get memoirs mixed up with advocacy, you know, and with journalism and all these sort of genres are blurred together. So where you, you have a woman saying, here, this has been my experience. It is representative of the experiences of all other women. This is why we should all do as I do. And this review kind of questions that. And that I thought was very interesting. So that's that's my nachas. Avi, what have you got? I have a nachas. Uh, sometimes you uh, come across an article that is not recent and you ask yourself, why did I not know about this article beforehand or this piece or this book? Um, it's from March 16, 2022. And the, the title of the article is, His Software Sang the Words of God, Then It Went Silent. The subhead is, who was Thomas Bookler, the late creator of beloved Torah program Trope Trainer, and can anything be done to revive his life's work? Uh, unlike yours, mine does not involve marriage like the rest of the uh, whole <laughs> uh, thing we've been talking about today, but it does have transactive it does have uh, not closeted but gay religious figures way before gay Orthodox Jews were cool and talked about regularly. Um, the pieces about this guy, Thomas Buckler, who writes this piece of software, as it says in the title, Trope Trainer, which is essentially uh, was a piece of software designed to help people learn their Torah portion, either for bar mitzvah or for later on in life if they were going to read a portion of Torah. It was a beloved piece of software which did not uh, evolve with the times and 
And so the latest Windows that I believe it was able to run on was like Windows 7. And so you always had like a computer in the Cantor's corner of the office that was able to run this old computer software um, because it was one of the best ways that anybody had ever managed to teach people how to read um, Torah. is a fascinating, rollicking read. I highly encourage you to read it, even if you do not uh, care about reading Torah. I find it a fascinating thing about what happens when software isn't able to evolve with the times, but it is a fundamentally Jewish uh, story about lost, things that are lost to, to you know, the, the Geniza of, of bits, is, is as I would call it. Um, so go check it out in inverse um, from about two years ago. Excellent. Well, thank you, Avi. This was a great episode. As always, Phoebe, thank you. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending March 2nd, Shabbat Parashat Kitisa. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcast is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We would love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It is one of the best ways we get new listeners, and as always, always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at the cjn.ca. 